Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, Tristan Banks, Sasanke Miss Mang, Jenny Orchard and Alice Pung discuss the gifts of reading. This session was recorded on Zoom with our guests calling in from across Australia and the Pacific. As such, there is some inconsistency in the audio quality. The Gifts of Reading is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hi, I'm Tristan Banks, an author for children and teens and writer ambassador for global literacy nonprofit Room to Read. Today, I'm speaking to three extraordinary humans about The Gifts of Reading, a powerful, funny, entertaining and comforting book of essays on the joys of reading, giving and receiving books. Royalties from the sale of this book go to Room to Read. I'm in Byron Bay, and this session was programmed for the 2021 Byron Bay Writers Festival, which unfortunately, due to COVID, was cancelled. But I'm really glad that we're able to bring you this session as a recording. I am joined by writer Alice Pung, who is in Melbourne. Alice is the author of two memoirs, Unpolished Gem and Her Father's Daughter, and her first novel, Lorinda, won the Ethel Turner Prize at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, and her new novel, 100 Days, is attracting fantastic reviews. Alice, welcome. How are you? Thanks so much, Tristan. I'm good. Very good. That's good. And you're you're in Melbourne right now? Are you in lockdown, as am yeah. I? Yeah, we, we are. We're in our third week of lockdown, and um, I think it will be indefinite to keep the case numbers down. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> we're doing well. Yeah. And how, how have you felt about um, releasing um, 100 Days or, or sp- spending time, I guess, talking about 100 Days in this sort of environment? Oh, it's interesting, Christian. It's, um, it's probably not optimal to release a book during lockdown because people can't come and hear you speak. But what I found wonderful is through Zoom sessions, you get a whole different audience. So people from interstate or overseas who otherwise might not go to the local library can still hear you at the local library talk on Zoom. So I, I guess that's the um, the silver lining to it. <laughs> that's true. And I'm sure that this one will be downloaded and streamed millions of times. Uh, so I'm sure that it'll have people running to, to your work. Um, oh, I love thanks. I love your essay in the gifts of reading, but we'll we'll talk a bit more um, about that soon. Okay, I'd like to introduce Sasonke Simang, who is coming to us live from Perth, Western Australia, land of the free, one of the only places in Australia where people roam free at the moment. Sasonke has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and is the author of two books: The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela and Always Another Country, a memoir of exile and home. Sasonke, thank you for taking the time to do this. I know that you're super busy and um, as a writer and as a parent and as running story centers and many things. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. And I'm um, such a fan of everyone on this call. So it's, it's, it's wonderful to be in conversation with um, people whose words I admire, like um, Alice and Jenny, the master editor. <laughs> um, how has it been for you as a writer in, in this period of time. I'm lucky that I'm not in a book cycle and so um, haven't had to deal with what Alice is dealing with. I I also will say that, um, you know, with family in South Africa, with friends and colleagues on the east coast of Australia, I definitely have a very strong sense of survivor's guilt. You know, we have been incredibly lucky uh, in WA and are relatively unaffected. But I think, you know, one of the things that coronavirus has taught us is that um, we all of us are affected, right? There's a sense of solidarity, a sense of wanting to make sure that people who you care about are, are okay, but also knowing that we kind of are all in this together, 
we not we may not be physically locked down, but I'm certainly very, very concerned about what it means for our kind of future ability to be connected again in the future. Yeah. I think this book has a, a real sort of sense of connection. And Jenny Orchard, the curator of the amazing gifts of reading and one of the most generous and energetic humans I know, she does so much work for so many nonprofits and arts organizations. Um, chief among those is Room to Read and uh, Jenny is in Hong Kong. How are you? I'm more or less fine. Um, as you know, I wasn't expecting to be in Hong Kong because I thought I had returned home to Australia last year, but it turns out that that's not quite yet possible. But anyway, I'm here and to, I, I don't know if Sasanke has visited Hong Kong. I know you and Alice have, and you possibly don't know that Hong Kong is COVID free, um, which is an extraordinary feat given the density of the population here. Um, and the only thing I would say that is amazing is that since January of last year, and I was here when all this started, everybody wears masks all the time. Um, obviously not inside in our homes, but everywhere else. And the other thing I would say is since I returned here, since I came out of quarantine on the 20th of August, I've done six COVID tests and I have another one tomorrow. So that is how they're managing. Um, and it's, it's kind of an extraordinary feat. Yeah. Yeah. You, you seem yeah. to have this amazing ability to, no matter where you are, you're always either in Hong Kong or you're in Australia or you'll pop up in London. And you seem to just have these projects that keep going and you keep a, a, such a web of contacts. I mean, I can only imagine that um, through the amount of connection that we have over Room to Read, that you must keep up strong communications with, I don't know, hundreds of people, do you? I think I do. And the network is, actually, I hate that word network. If people tell me I'm a great networker, I say, please don't say that. I like to think I have relationships with people. Um, but even in the last few days, um, I was asking a few people who contributed to um, the gifts of reading if they would let me have the title or titles of books that had inspired or comforted them during the pandemic. And one of the people I was in touch with was Pico Ayer. And I happened to mention to Pico that I'd recently read a remarkable memoir called Max by Alex Miller. And it turned out that Pico and Max uh, Pico and Alex had met in Wellington like 20 years ago and suddenly I've connected them and I'm part of this huge conversation that's going on <laughs> and I love it, I love it, but it means I don't read as many books as I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, there's a board game called The Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, and it's sort of how, how people in Hollywood and things are connected by oh, yeah. Kevin Bacon to everybody else. I, I think that there must be only two degrees of Jenny Orchard, you know. Once you know Jenny <laughs> Orchard, you pretty much can connect yourself to anyone in the world. Um, Do you so... know Kevin Bacon, Jenny? No, I don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if he oh, writes a novel, if he writes a novel, I'm sure she will get to know him. Yeah, <laughs> Alice has, has proven my theory wrong within seconds, um, which is extraordinary. Thank you to all three of you for, for doing this. This is so great that we can keep the spirit of the Byron Bay Writers Festival alive. I've been going to the festival for 22 years, I think, and uh, it was certainly uh, formative in me becoming a writer, going along and listening to people speak about their process and the things that inspired them. And I'd go away after that, just full to the brim. And I know Jenny and I have spoken about this too, full to the brim of um, just inspiration to, to do your own writing and to somehow reach for the for the heights of the, the people that you admired at the festival. Um, Alice, you've been to Byron Writers Festival a number of times, haven't you? Yes, yeah. And did you, uh, what are your sort of memories or experiences of the festival? Oh, I just love the festival. It's one of the most democratic ones because I just remember everyone's outside in tents. So um, you have emerging writers pitched in a tent next to, I don't know, Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> it's quite quite a lovely festival. The only other one that comes close is the, the Perth Writers Festival, which is also a similar setup like that. Um, the festivals in the in in the larger eastern cities are quite. I mean, you have to pay your twenty dollars to see a really famous person, or you know, and and they're quite scattered. But Byron is just so lovely. That's true, and I agree about Perth. I actually think I met you at Perth Writers Festival like ten or eleven years I ago. I think so too. I thought it was Byron, but 
actually, it might have been Perth. <laughs> yeah, I can picture the yes. tents. The tents is it's really similar. The marquees and Sasanke, yes. have you have you um, been part of Byron Writers Festival before? I have. Yes, I was at Byron right before COVID. So I think the year before was it 2019? Yeah. Or 2018, I went. Um, and yeah, really beautiful setting. Incredible team that puts it together. You just feel so warm and welcomed, like, you know, as soon as you get out of your car. And yes, the grounds are beautiful. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. And that coffee and sunshine and things. So hopefully this session we can radiate some, you know, buyer and green grass, coffee and sunshine. So I just wanted to kick off by reading a short piece from Robert McFarlane. He, he is the founder of this concept, right? The Gifts of Reading, Jenny. Can you actually um, tell us a little bit about how you came across Robert McFarlane's original essay, The Gifts of Reading? I'd love to tell you. I mean, honestly, it was an impact by impulse by, not impact by, impulse by, but then the impulse by had an impact, obviously. Um, I was actually at the Tate Gallery in London, um, and there suddenly in front of me were, was a little pile of this essay, which was published independently in the first instance, just a, a small book. Um, it was sold for £2.50 and it was called The Gifts of Reading, and I knew Robert McFarlane's name, but I'd never read anything by him, and, you know, what's not to love? The Gifts of Reading. I picked it up. It was There was a beautiful illustration on the cover, which turns out was done by his friend, artist Stanley Donwood. I bought it. I got onto the tube to go somewhere. I'd read it by the time I got there, and I think within kind of maybe 24 hours, I thought, wow, this would make an amazing anthology. I mean, I just love the way um, the friendship between Robert McFarlane and this man, Don, was formed in Beijing when they were teaching English literature at the same time. And the friendship then endured through the exchange of books. They met each other a couple of times, but actually it was through the exchange of books and one book in particular, A Time of Gifts by Patrick Lee Firmer. Um, which was a book about a journey. And Robert says somewhere that um, this book, of Gifts of Reading, is, it, it's like a journey. I mean, so many books are like journeys. Anyway, that's how I came across it. And as I was thinking about doing a book, um, with my kind of old commissioning editor's hat on, because as you know, I worked in publishing in London and in Sydney for a while, um, it suddenly occurred to me that Room to Read was approaching its 20th anniversary and what better than to create an anthology talking about the books that writers like to give and to give the proceeds to an organisation that was giving the gifts of reading to millions of children in low-income countries. So that's how it was born. I just think it's such an original idea and it seems like such a you idea in that, you know, your collision of, you know, your love of books, your chance find of this, this funny little book that was two pounds, I think, the gift of reading and then your love of room to read and that you've brought those things together. I might just read a, a short uh, piece of Robert McFarlane's uh, essay at the beginning of gifts of reading. Having been given so many remarkable books over the years, I now in turn give away as many as I can. Birthdays, Christmases, I give books, and pretty much only books as presents. Always hard copies. I've never given or been given an e-book. Once or twice a year, I invite my students at Cambridge to my room and let them take two or three books, each from the 50 or 60 that I've laid out on the floor. The pleasure they take in choosing and their disbelief that the books are free reminds me of how precious books were to me when I was a student. Um, and I just love that. I love that you know even if you're not a student if somebody's going to give you a book for free are you insane you know this is such a it's such a treat and especially to be able to choose books from sort of 50 or 60 like that i think it's beautiful and he writes so well so beautifully about books i just read one other little um one other little piece of his essay here that i love perhaps the aspects of authorship i cherish most are the glimpses i get of how my books are themselves carried or are themselves given when I sign books at readings, people frequently want their copies inscribed as gifts. Would you make this out to my mother who loves mountains, to my brother who lives in Calcutta, to my best friend who is ill, to my father who is no longer able to walk as far as he would wish? Several times I've been asked to inscribe books to young children who can't yet read. We want to give this book to them now so it's waiting for them when they're ready for it. These conversations with readers and the stories that arise from this giving of gifts are among the strongest of the forces that keep me writing. 
I, I love that he gives away books. I also love that the giving of books actually inspires him to continue to write. Sasanke and Alice, do you have this, have you, do you have any stories at all of, of your books having traveled to interesting places or having been left in interesting places and picked up or passed on? Um, I once found my book in a small town of about 8,000 people in Sitka in Alaska. And it was right next on, on the same table as a book that was selling at that time quite well, which is Sarah Palin's autobiography. And the frontispiece of her autobiography was so fascinating. It was a map of the world from the top, so from the North Pole. And she, she has a sense of humor because you can actually see Russia from America if you are standing at the top of the world from the North Pole. But anyhow, we were put on the same table because I was um, a, a visiting author in Alaska and the bookseller was wonderful. This tiny independent bookstore in Alaska say, was saying, we're, we're trying to spruik your book than we are Sarah Palin's because her, her book is um, selling itself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that you and Sarah Palin as a double act. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, should, you should tour together perhaps. <laughs> Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and Sasanke, do you have any do you have any stories of your books having been passed on or turning yeah, up? Yeah, when I my book first came out in South Africa, but I have a very wide network of people I know and love around the world, and so the South Africa edition came out before the UK and US edition, and um, I had all these people traveling around. My, my the the cover that I love the most is um of a it's a pink cover and it's a little girl on a bike and she's got red shoes on and people would like take pictures of this little girl everywhere exchanging hands and all these friends like I've got it and they would like take pictures of themselves in Nairobi Kenya um, she got to Uganda she got all over Africa which was you know really beautiful because the a book distribution network, of course, on our continent is not great, um, but people found a way to move that book all over. So lots of dog-eared copies would, you know, find their way into people's hands. It was very, very gorgeous. That's so good. I love, I love that idea of a book sort of moving around a continent or around yes. the world. So do, do, for all three of you, maybe Jenny, you could kick off. Is there a particular book that you love to give in the spirit of this idea of gifts of reading is there is there a particular book that you've given perhaps more than once or that you would like to give more than once i think there are quite a few books i've given more than once but there's one book that i've given many more times than once and it's a book that i was given on my 40th birthday which is actually now quite a few years ago unfortunately um but it's an extraordinary book i think i gave alice a copy not so long ago you it's did yes a book that was published in 1955. I wonder if Sisonke knows about it. A Gift from the Sea by Anne Morrow Lindbergh. And bear in mind, it was written 70 years ago almost, and it's about women and how they manage to balance their lives, how they can be wives and mothers and maybe manage households and find time for their creative work. I and, need that book. Yeah, I'm gonna, I've actually already made a note to send it to you. <laughs> I'm <laughs> <sighs> and there's a word in it and you might know this word Sisanke, because I'm sure you speak a little bit of Afrikaans there's a German word in it called Zerissenheit which means being torn apart mm. and at the time I felt a bit like this and I have given this book to so many people including Tristan some of the volunteers who were part of the original Room to Read team in Sydney like Nahiri um, and yeah I, I think Alice you're the most recent recipient and it, oh, I don't know if time to read it yet but it just still stands up and it's a beautiful book she's I mean yes she was frustrated by the tensions in her life but she was calmed by the seashore by shells and she writes beautifully about relationships as well there are a couple of passages I often give to young people when they're getting married so that's my book Tristan ah beautiful thank you I think my wife would oh, love that one too. too Alice are you is there a particular book that you've given more than once or many times Oh, at this stage in life, I give a lot of children's books. And um, I'm sure you all know the, the Very Hungry Caterpillar, just because Eric Carle passed away recently. But I found out many years ago, I, I thought it was just a children's book and it had little holes and it was sweet. But I found out that 
Eric Carle wrote that book and all the foods at the end, you know, where there's chocolate cake and cherry pie, were the things he wished he had when he was surviving the war and he didn't have any food to eat. Oh. So there were the foods that he thought about. And it's just given that book new meaning to me. So <laughs> it's one I give away a lot. Oh, that's good. I like I like hearing new uh, facts on the very hungry caterpillar that we didn't know <laughs> before. And Sisonke, um, is there a book, a particular book for you? Yeah, I'm also a big fan of children's books, but I probably have given away uh, the God of Small Things and bought and rebought and have it missing from my, you know, from my own library and go and try and find it again. Uh, the God of Small Things by Arunati Roy is just, for me, it's a sort of a book that came out as though it had always been written. Um, and, I, you know, lots and lots of people always said, when's she, you know, going to do her next one? And she finally, you know, did her next one, but I didn't need it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I felt that if that's all she ever does in terms of fiction, uh, that's, it, it just, it, it, for me, it is the epitome of what, um, how you can throw yourself into a completely different world and be transported. So I do love, love that, the, that book and the mad twins at the center of it. Okay. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. Um, I came across a sort of a, a cache of, um, of the old man and the sea the Ernest Hemingway book a few years ago and I for some reason I ended up with like five or six copies of it and that, that's one that I've given away quite a bit um, mm -hmm. and I'd love to think that the audience um, listening to this might be able to think about their own gifts of reading and the books that they've loved to receive and the books that they love to give and whether there are particular titles that you've given over and over again and if on the platform that you're listening to this on there's an opportunity to share comments or perhaps on the social media platforms that you're sharing this podcast on you could also include you know that book that you love to gift and and just keep this cycle going of of sharing of sharing stories and oh jenny i've had i feel like i've had a sort of long-term relationship uh with the gifts of reading in a sense like i remember you first uh you sent me a copy of it maybe two or three years ago of robert mcfarlane's essay and i remember reading it and thinking it was fantastic and you were saying i've got this idea for this book and then i remember having conversations with you when you were sort of darting around london visiting publishers and thinking oh, you know i'm hoping that i can get this thing away and then you know through that process of you reaching out to some quite extraordinary authors can you just talk um, a little bit about how this book came together because i mean it's amazing that you have you know alice and sasonke and that you have um philip pullman and you have pico Aya and you have many many uh, amazing authors uh, in this book how did you do it well i said i started making a list of um priorities and people almost as soon as i had the idea and there were a few different things i wanted to have in the book people who had connections with room to read program countries like south africa Cambodia. So Sisonke is perfect for South Africa. We have Madeleine Tian, who has Cambodian connections, as does Alice. Um, we have Michael Ondati, who has connections with Sri Lanka. So I had a long, long list of people like that. And then there were people, Alice was also one of those, like Marcus Zusak, who had been connected with Room to Read for a while. Um, and then there were a lot of people, I'm always um, printing off articles about people who are passionate about libraries and literacy and storytelling and the importance of literacy in this world. And so, yeah, I just had this long list and I started working through it. And a lot of people said no to me as well. Lots of people because writers are extraordinarily, extraordinarily busy. And there I was asking them to write an essay, not only that, to not get paid for doing it. Um, Pico Iyer was fantastically generous because when I met him in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong Lit Fest a couple of years ago, he said, we, we chatted about the book and about a few people I hadn't been able to get in touch with. And he encouraged me to go back to Michael Ondati and Jan Morris, um, both of whom ended up contributing, not an original essay, but something that hadn't been in print before. And of course, with Jan Morris, it was probably the last thing that she published before she died. I don't think Jan Morris is as well known in Australia as she is in England and Hong Kong, um, but she was the most extraordinarily talented travel writer and historian and died at the age of 94 last year. She was actually, um, I don't know if any of you know this, but Jan Morris was um, one of the early and very high profile um, 
people to change their gender. She had um, a sex change operation in 1974 and wrote a book about it called Conundrum. Anyway, extraordinary that she came on board. So, and of course, John Wood, um, he was one of the first people I told, John Wood being the founder of Room to Read. When I had this idea, I, I mean, I had to go straight to John Wood and I sent him that little book, Tristan, just as I gave it to you, I sent it to him for his birthday. And he came back and said, oh, I love this. This Anke and Alice have both come across John, you know how incredibly enthusiastic he is. Let's get together. And I said, well, I've got an idea for you. And of course, you know, he was high-fiving the minute I told him what I wanted to do. And I think he ended up being absolutely thrilled to be between the covers um, with all these other extraordinarily talented writers. I mean, I just couldn't believe the quality of all the essays that came in, the, the diversity and the quality. I mean, I just, you know, they, everybody had the same brief and yet there were all these different responses and wonderful, generous, articulate, superb responses. I love going back again and again to reading them. Anyway, I'll shut up now. Time for somebody else to speak. There's a Cuban saying, every world, every head is a world. And I think it's such a great way of describing how you can give everyone the same brief and they come up with something completely different. Mm. Um, Alice, I was wondering if you would consider um, reading a short piece from your essay in the book. Do you happen to have a piece from reading between the lines? Um, sure, I'll just read you the last paragraph, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, not sure. That long. Okay. Um, in my life, the miraculous does not involve magic. There is nothing that makes the state of childhood particularly magical. There is a lot that is frightening, brutal and cruel about every stage of life. After all, I know that a single tree can harbour a cradle or a grave, but to be able to do what my hardworking, wonderful mother never could time travel, mind read, even never to mistake dish detergent for shampoo because the pictures of fruit on the bottle are similar. This is a gift I will never take for granted. Mm. And there's so much in that. There's so much, it's so dense because you bring together um, so many sort of big threads and ideas in your essay and you manage to do it with humour and um, I just wondered whether you might be able to unpack that a little bit. Um, or the idea around uh, a single tree harboring a cradle or a grave, where did that come from? Oh, sure. This is quite a brutal story, but my father survived the killing fields of Cambodia. And one of the methods they killed um, small children because they didn't want to waste their bullets from their AK-47s was to swing a child by their legs, their ankles, against the tree until that child stopped moving. So if you visit Cambodia today, you see a lot of trees saying this is where children were executed. Um, but where I grew up in Australia, I was born here. And um, when I went to school, one of the earliest nursery rhymes you were taught is rock a by baby on a tree top, you know. So a tree can can harbor a cradle or a hammock. But that that song was pretty macabre as well. <laughs> when you think about the lyrics, down will um, baby cradle and all the cradle breaks and the baby falls down so every period of life is fraught with danger so I spent a lot of my childhood um, in lockdown essentially so it, it's nothing new to me being in lockdown in Melbourne because <laughs> my parents believed the outside world was very unsafe and so I had no solace except for books um, because we didn't have the internet back then and there were only four television stations <laughs> And can you tell, can you talk a little bit about that idea of down will come baby cradle and all you tie that into, you know, a personal experience from childhood and then also into your reading into your into your childhood love of reading and in this and you, there's a particular <laughs> line in the essay where you where you use expletives to describe reading as well. Could you could you sort of um, uh, unpack that a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, Tristan. Um, yeah, I, I use expletives and I think in expletives because <laughs> that was what I thought when I was younger. I grew up in a very um, a very poor area in, in the western suburbs of Melbourne where that was the way you spoke. And if you didn't use expletives, you were like, posh, you were too, too good for this suburb. So you just grow up thinking it's normal to use the F word or S word in every second sentence that you think. So um. I just remember when, when I was younger and I'm the oldest of, of four and my job was to look after the younger ones. 
And so every Saturday or every fortnight, um, we'd go to the library, get a stack of books and I'd read them. And I think one day I was reading and my sister fell off the bed and she couldn't crawl yet. She just kicked herself off the bed. And my mother, who was an outworker in the garage, you know, her face was all blackened because she made jewellery. She has a sixth sense about these things. So she came running into the house and um, Chinese mothers, especially ones who, uh, my mother can't read or write. It's the, the language I've been taught, you think I have foul language, my mother is, <laughs> she taught me this. So she comes yelling and screaming and saying, what on earth has happened? But in more expletives. And she pulls my sister and she goes, you've made your sister retarded. And that's, that's the exact word she used. Like, oh no, even my sister brain damage. Because they've always said babies have very soft skulls. Mm. And um, she calls my dad up. And the first thing she says is, hey, you all come home quick. Alice has made her sister retarded. Come home. So my dad comes home. I'm like, oh. You know? <laughs> so I was like, these fucking books. Fucking hell. What have they done? <laughs> so that, that was, um, reading was a bit of a curse. And of course, my mother always told me. And my mother, I hope you don't get any ideas, but she loves me. Um, her love for me is so fierce that she used to sit me down every couple of years and say, don't study so much because you won't be able to get married. A girl who has too many books in her head will be smarter than her husband and no husband will want her. And she did it for my own good, you know. So I always thought this gift was a curse. Did you get the same? I didn't get the same. I didn't get the same from my mom, but I definitely have so many of those aunties. That is 100% relatable content. (laughs) And lots of advice to pretend not to be so clever. Lots and lots of advice to pretend. Yeah, don't, you don't have to be so clever. You don't have to show it. It's fine (laughs) to be it inside. <laughs> ah, isn't that extraordinary? And I mean, Sasanke, your essay, in a way, is not an not that there are definite parallels, but I mean, your experience of um, your mother gave you the gift of reading oh, to, to a great degree. Well, they both did in in different ways. But can you can you explain, Sasanke, sure. a little about how how your mother gave you that gift? Yeah, my mom was very very much of an outlier. Um, she believed strongly in education. She wanted us to be, we were three girls. People were always pressuring my mom that don't, why, why, where's the next one? You know, because the next one surely would be a boy. <laughs> you know, it's a, a curse to have only girls. <laughs> so she was, uh, you know, often under a lot of pressure to have, uh, you know, another child who was a boy. And she just ignored that stuff. My mom was very focused on kind of making sure that we had, um all the skills that she knew we would need to have to survive in the world. And education was very, very important to her. So when we were little, my mom forced us to read every Sunday. That was her alone time. It was an escape for her. We, um, we, every afternoon on Sundays, we would spend two to three hours in bed reading. And if you got out of bed to try to do something else, you would be sharply told, get back in the bed. (laughs) Um, So definitely my love for reading was kind of imposed on me. (laughs) And like Alice, you know, there was no TV. I grew up in East Africa and there was certainly TV after 6 p.m. when I was a kid, but until then, it was those bars. Oh. <laughs> <You> know, those... <laughs> I was trying to explain this to my kids the other day, and they were like, what century was that? And I was like, it was actually last century, <laughs> technically. <laughs> so, you know, the, I think, you know, the, the fact that books were such a big part of what my mom knew that we needed to grow to love in order to, you know, do well in school and all of that stuff is, is truly, that was definitely her greatest gift to my sisters and I. And do you happen to have a piece that you might be able to read from your essay? Why I certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) As a child, I read to escape, to pass the time, to stave off boredom and to learn new words. On Sundays, my mother insisted that my sisters and I read in bed while she napped. In retrospect, I realized it was her way of finding space, of seeking time away from our demands, from the drudgery of motherhood. On Sunday afternoons, she could lie in bed without interruption, no questions, no little faces peering up at her. Her need for independence and for breathing room was a gift. As she sought her own freedom, my mother pushed her girls towards books. 
when I was a teenager, my mother told me to always buy presents for people that I would want for myself. It was a lesson in generosity, but also a reminder of her wise selfishness. The most important gifts she gave us were also gifts to herself. She understood that our freedom was a prerequisite for her own. On those Sundays, we could read whatever we liked. I read a lot of books about horses, most of them not very good. But I was given a copy, <laughs> but I was given a copy of Black Beauty by a passing comrade from the UK. That book broke my heart and made me hate adults with a vehemence that my father had to temper with long talks and bedtime tickles. It taught me that books were good, not just for reading, but for crying too. I loved Anne of Green Gables as well. And because I had once had a good friend named Diana, I thought that the book was really about me, a headstrong girl whom everyone adored. In my house, of course, there were far too many of us for me to be adored quite as much as Anne. As I hit my teens, I took books off my parents' shelf. I gobbled up a dry white season by Andre Brink, often returning to the sexy bits, in part because I couldn't fully understand the other stuff. I was too <laughs> far removed from South Africa to see the mastery in Brink's depiction of Ben Detroit's guilt, nor could I fully understand the banality of a young, poor black boy's disappearance in a country I had never visited. I wasn't quite old enough to appreciate how well he had portrayed the quiet malevolence of the apartheid system that my parents had escaped. I cried and I cried when I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. I haven't read that book in many years and I have no idea if it's as good as I believed it was. In many ways, I'm afraid to reread it. I am not the girl I was back then. Still, it developed my conscience in much the same way as Oliver Twist and Black Beauty. And of course, as I think about it now, it is obvious that by insisting that we read, our mother was gifting us these big hearts that have carried us this far. Mm, thank you so much. It's so nice hearing you read. It remind me how much I, I, in preparing for this, I watched your TED talk as well. And I, I love that. I mean, this is the gift of a great writers festival, isn't it? Being able to hear fantastic storytellers read from their work and, you know, tell you about the behind the scenes stuff. I just recorded my audio book and I have to say, if I never hear my voice again, I will be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh really well yes well I'd, I'd like to hear it again can you can you tell me did the your mum's magic trick of uh sending you to bed to read on Sundays what effect did that have on your siblings are they readers too yeah we are all readers my sisters and I all love books we recommend books to one another we have the same kind of tricks of how we decide whether something's going to be a good book before we read a review about it um, yeah, we absolutely, books uh, are something that we all love, but also something that we talk about a lot within our relationship, uh, within our sisterhood. That's so good. I mean, it's it's quite unique and quite unusual too. Like I know we used to have, our boys would get up at obscene times of the morning when they were, you know, two and three and four and five years old. And we'd say, okay, if you're going to get up before you know, it might've been 5.30 or something like that, you have to read. Or if you get up before six o'clock, all you can do is your only option is to get books off the shelf, a pile of books, and then just sit and read them. And they both did that. And one of them has ended up being a voracious reader who reads much faster than I do and rips through books. And the other one will prefer, you know, will choose, loves stories, loves being read to, loves audio books, you know, loves movies and things like that, but but won't choose to actively pick up a book uh, if he can avoid it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Alice, um, are your, are your uh, siblings um, readers? Yes, except for one, except for my younger sister who loves animals. And she only, look, when my books came out, she only read them to see if she was in them and if I wrote anything about her, but that was it. <laughs> but she's actually um, a school teacher now, a, a primary school teacher. So she likes children's books, but she she's not really much of a reader. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Jenny, what about your siblings? Do you, have you, were they, um, you know, readers? Were you all readers growing up? Were you a reader growing up? I was a reader growing up, but I've been thinking about this a lot. I wasn't the voracious reader that you might have expected me to have been. My parents loved books. They were educated, but I think even, I mean, I'm probably 20 years older than all of you. And I think at that time, you know, we didn't have the enormous number of books that we now have in our households. And I don't think there was, um, in particular, I don't think sort of books for children were so much discussed and recommended. And I don't remember that person in my life who is steering me towards the books that I might want to read. Um, I think my 
voracious involvement with books came when I went into publishing in London as a graduate trainee. I mean, I'd done a modern languages degree, so I'd had to read a lot of books in French and German, and sometimes in translations because I was too lazy to read them in the original. Um, but it wasn't an English degree. And sometimes I think, gosh, that was really quite an unorthodox beginning. And do you have another um, another book that you particularly love to give? Well, I thought I, I was thinking of books I might mention. I thought I'm going to um, bring one into the conversation that you may or may not have heard of. It's called A Velocity of Being. It's a book that was put together by a woman called Maria Popover, who sends oh, yeah. an extraordinary um, newsletter called Brain Pickings once yes. a week and then I'm a, a week. I'm a regular reader of Brain Pickings. Is yeah. that is and that so you know that she actually recommends quite a lot of children's books, many of them published by Enchanted Lion in the States. And once a year, she produces a book, um, a, a list of her favourite children's books. Anyway, A Velocity of Being, I don't actually have it with me, but it's quite a big book. And it obviously has come together over a period of seven or eight years. It is letters to children about reading, and most of them are called uh, addressed Dear Reader. And these letters are written by poets and scientists and philosophers and artists, and everyone takes part or all of a page, it's quite a big book, and everyone is illustrated by a different artist. And I read about this book, I was going to get it, and then I was gifted it by a friend who actually had a friend who'd illustrated one of the letters. Um, anyway, it's an, it is an extraordinary book, and yeah, I think you would all love it. Ah, philosophy of being. Okay, thank you. And Sisonke, <laughs> do, you have another, do you have another hot tip on a book that you love to, to give? I love this little short story for my birthday a few years ago, my husband gave me the collected works of Ursula Le Guin. Um, and so that is, I mean, it's massive because she wrote so much, but there's a short story that I fell in love with of hers many years ago called The Ones Who Left Omelas, which I'm sure have you, and that just for me is one I return to again and again. It's um, available online, free in lots of little places. You can always find it. And the, the way that story is crafted is just so beautiful. Um, and it's just one of my favorite little pieces, tiny pieces of literature that I return to over and over again. Oh, good. Okay, thank you. And Alice, do you have one more for us? Oh, I do. I have one that's a picture book and one that's a short story. So the picture book that actually I've gifted the most in my lifetime, besides The Hungry Caterpillar, which is for a very specific age, is Sean Tan's The Red Tree, mm. um, which, which is a, one of the most beautiful children's books I've ever read. And it was actually, it's actually um, probably for adults, but children get it straight. It's a very, very sad book. Yeah, it's about... Yeah. Um, about depression actually <laughs> but it's beautiful and I love Shantan I I mean one of Australia's absolute treasures mm. whether it's for children or adults yes. I absolutely just the lost thing is one of my favorite uh his whimsy and his imagination and yeah I could talk about Shantan all day long <laughs> such a nice guy as well I'm sure you've met him Tristan I have yeah oh, you have as well. I remember being at an awards ceremony with him and he was winning this massive award, but we sat next to each other and he said, you know, I don't like coming to these things. I wish I was at home, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> yeah. he's very introverted. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually a beautiful short film too, um, The Lost Thing. I don't know if you've ever seen. I haven't um, seen the short film. film. I have a feeling it either won an Oscar. He or... won an Oscar. He went wow. to the Oscars. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, he went to the yeah. Oscars with his wife and she's funny. She said, my dress costs more than it took you to make this short film, didn't it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that's gorgeous. Sorry. That's gorgeous. But yeah, what a mind. And yeah, what a like humble and just low key. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's actually a good segue to Jenny has spoken over time about uh, a, a gifts of reading to children. Um, and I just wondered if you might be able to discuss this idea a bit more, Jenny, of a book that for adults, but that explores the joys of reading to children and giving books to children. And because those those books are, are kind of a gift to the parents as well. I can. And you know what? It's coming back to me, Tristan, that I think we first talked about all of this when you were in Hong Kong 
maybe at the end of 2018 when you came to the Literary Festival here. And that's when I gave you the essay and I probably told you that I'd already started thinking about um, a gift of reading for children. And I'm still thinking about it. And um, when I've mentioned it to a few people, they said, what, you mean a book for children? I said, no, um, a book for adults and parents and grandparents, teachers and librarians to buy a book where people write these wonderful essays with recommendations for uh, books that children would love. Um, and it was interesting with the brief for um, the gifts of reading. I wasn't really expecting anybody to write about books for children. Um, Philip Pullman, yes, of course, maybe. And a couple of people mentioned, um, David Pilling mentioned who and Sally Vickers mentioned a Beatrix Potter. But the writer who wrote exclusively about the best gifts you can give was a man called SF Said. And I've never heard of SF before. Um, he was a recommendation who came to me from Robert McFarlane. And I thought he wrote a magnificent essay, actually. And what he said at the beginning of it, children's books are really books for an audience that includes children, but excludes no one. I give children's books for the same reason that I write them, because I think they're the most important books of all. They're the ones that make us readers in the first place. And because they come first, they shape us most profoundly, giving us ways to think about the world and our experiences of it, opening windows to other worlds, other experiences. So yes, I very much want to do this, and I'm not sure yet whether or not it's going to be the gifts of reading for children or the gifts of reading for the next generation, because I would quite like Sasanke, for example, to write about the books that she might recommend to her daughter who wants to be a, a social justice activist. And you know, if we open it up to a sort of slightly broader age range, we can get books about the environment and about you know some of these issues of our time. I mean, young people must be wondering about this world that we're living in. I mean there's so much going wrong. So I do very much want to do it. I would love to invite some of the people who've contributed this book into this book to write again. And I also have quite a few other ideas. So let's hope I can make it happen. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'd, I'd love to see that that book happen and love to, you know, do anything. I'd to... quite like you to be in it, Tristan. Actually... <laughs> well, that's why I want it. No, I'm making. Um, <laughs> no, I would, I'd just love, I'd, I mean, I'd love to read that book. I'd love those recommendations, even being an author for kids and being surrounded by kids books all the time. You know, when you really get people to narrow it down to those very special books that they would recommend over any others, those books that kind of speak to them in in ways that you can, you know, that are difficult to put words to almost, um, I think that's when you really get to those, those powerful books that everyone has to read. And I think you see that in the, in the gifts of, in the gifts section at the back of the gifts of reading, you get a lot of those, those vital books. Could you speak a little bit, Jenny, about how this book, the gifts of reading helps children around the world through room to reads local language? publishing program? I sure can. I mean, Room to Read, as you know, um, has two focuses. One of them is literacy and the other one is gender equality. It's been committed to literacy and gender equality through education for the past 20 years. The organisation was founded in 2000. And in the early days, um, it was really about creating libraries, places where children could go and have access to books, because in the low-income countries we're talking about, from Nepal to Sri Lanka to um, South Africa to Tanzania, you know, children just didn't have access to places and to spaces and to guidance through trained teachers, etc. Um, over the years, Room to Read has um, changed its focus a little bit in that it has started to deliver literacy programs. But in order to deliver these programs, they needed to actually create materials. And the local language publishing program actually dates back to the beginning, but it is an extraordinary success. And really as a result of COVID, it's exploded in a completely new direction. So what we were talking about originally was storybooks created for children in local languages, like Swahili, like Tamil, like Khmer, um, you know, languages where there weren't mainstream publishers operating. And Room to Read was finding local authors and illustrators and getting these stories created and publishing them locally and doing them, you know, often in print runs of five or 10,000 copies, and they were able to produce them at a very low unit cost. Um, and 
that is still happening. The number of languages has increased, and I was just going to tell you how many titles now run to readers. 1,800 books have been published around the world in more than 30 languages. And there was an article written a few years ago where Room to Read was described as the most influential children's book publisher you've never heard of. I find yeah. that extraordinary um, yeah. and exciting that this organization is constantly sort of finding new ways of impacting children in far-flung, impoverished, remote communities and having such an impact. So every copy, all, all the authors who contributed to this have written their essays for nothing and the royalties are going to room to read and so books of that kind will be funded. Alice, can you, what was it that brought you to room to read in the first place and why, you know, why do you feel compelled to continue to support room to read? Oh, I think it was Jenny. Everyone just loves Jenny. <laughs> You're not a networker, Jenny, your friend. So Jenny and I became friends and I don't know, just for the love of Jenny, I thought, what is this organization about? And what really compelled me to join her? What, what makes this um, an organization that I resonate deeply with is because my family's from Cambodia. And one of the first things I did with Room to Read was I watched a video um, about what they did. And I saw these girls in Cambodia who, whose lives had been changed by literacy and, um, you know, they had many siblings and they were living in quite a state of poverty. And I thought, wow, that, that could have been me if we were unlucky by a couple of months. Because my mum was eight months pregnant when she came to Australia. And to be able to see your life in its parallel form and to see um, someone making a difference to the lives of, because we still have family in Cambodia and that's, that's where my parents were born, you know. <laughs> It really resonated on a deep level. And then I saw um, girls in Vietnam, girls in India who were all um, experiencing very similar things. And I thought that there is a universal um, sisterhood or a childhood that we're all part of. And I have a daughter myself and I hope she'll continue to be part of Room to Read. I actually think that's a really nice note to finish on that you've brought it back to sort of some of the some of the threads in your in your essay, um, but also, you know, the the this book's ability to hopefully help uh, change change some lives, and I guess why we were sort of all attracted to this organisation in the first place. And um, I love that you've all given your time, um, Jenny Orchard. Thank you very much, and Alice Pung and Sasonkem uh, Simang. Thank you for yeah taking the time to to speak to us about the gifts of reading. Um, I hope that everybody races and gets a copy of the book, easily orderable online or through your local bookseller, um, and that you flick quickly to through to, to your essays first, because they're a fantastic read. Thank you so much, Tristan. Thank you, Tristan. No Great problem. to talk to you, Jenny and um, Alice. I would like to thank all of you for everything um, because Tristan hasn't written an essay for this volume but might, might write in future but I want to just remember the words that Robert McFarlane wrote at the end of his preface. Repeatedly books and words are given and received as gifts prompting in turn further generosity including the giving of each of these essays. Truly the gift gives on and on and on and that's what you all do and I can't thank you enough. Thank, thank you Jenny. And I, and I hope that we all next see each other at Byron Writers Festival and, you know, that humans are able to sort of come together again to, yes. to celebrate books in yeah. person. Thank yeah. you all very much. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much, Christian. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm -hmm.